Good day and welcome to Letters and Politics. I'm Mitch Jezerich. Today I'm very happy to welcome to the radio program Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky is a world-renowned linguist and political activist. He is the Institute Professor Emeritus in the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Laureate Professor of Linguistics and Chair in the Program Environment and Social Justice at the University of Arizona. He's the author of many books, many translated into different languages. He is has a new book out along with Vijay Prashad. It's really a conversation between Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad called The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. Professor Chomsky, thank you so much for taking this time to join me today. Pleased to be with you. I suspect we're going to be talking a lot about U.S. imperialism, and sometimes I'm guilty of using terms without really giving explanation to those terms. So can I just begin by asking, how do you define imperialism? It's uh, the power that one country exerts over others can take many forms, can take the form of military occupation, uh, overthrow of governments, uh, uh, strangling countries by brutal sanctions, uh, all sorts of means. Is it different from empire? Well, empire usually is used to mean specific form of control, uh, literal domination, the way, say, the British ruled India. That's an empire. But there are many looser forms of imperialism, sometimes called soft power, which can be pretty brutal. I mean, the United States, for example, doesn't occupy Cuba, but for 60 years it's been strangling and destroying the country with uh, no notice that there's anything wrong. So you may have seen a couple of days ago... uh, a rather good article, I think it was in the Washington Post, about uh, Cuba's remarkable success in uh, vaccination uh, well beyond the United States or other countries. And it describes it accurately, and it describes the difficulties. For example, they can't get syringes uh, because uh, other countries are afraid to supply them because of the third-party character of U.S. sanctions. And uh, a researcher has to go to Europe to try to see if he can find some simple components that they can use to save people's lives. And this is just described as if, uh, yes, that's the weather today. Actually, it's 60 years of brutal, vicious torture now, even to the extent of preventing them from uh, uh, their carrying out a very successful program of uh, saving the population from a dread disease. But, okay, that's the way the wind's blowing today. Has America always been an imperial power? Well, the United States has an unusual history. The United States is about 
the only country I can think of that's been at war virtually every year since its founding, almost always aggressive war. Uh, a major reason, maybe the main reason for the revolution, was that uh, King George III of England had him imposed a royal proclamation which prevented the the colonists from invading uh, what was called uh, the territory of the Indian nations. And the colonists didn't want that. They wanted to expand and take over the lands and exterminate the population. It included uh, the founder of the country, George Washington, great land speculator, didn't want to be restricted by these constraints. Well, the British were thrown out, the constraints were lifted, the colonists immediately invaded the Indian nations and carried out what they themselves described as a program of extermination and expulsion. Don't have to run through the details, but it ran through the 19th century. Meanwhile, the U.S. picked up uh, half of Mexico, including where I live, in a war that uh, President Grant uh, described as one of the most wicked wars in history. He greatly regretted his participation in it as a junior officer. Uh, That brings us to the end of the century. After that comes intervention, violence, uh, overthrows of government, subversion uh, worldwide at an astonishing level. Uh, no, no country comes close. So call it what name you want. I think imperialism is a good name. Has it American imperialism always been on, I guess, a linear project, projection or has it transformed over time? It's transformed. The United States can no longer do what it did routinely 50 or 60 years ago, just uh, send the Marines. You know, you can't can't do that anymore. Uh, you have to do it in more uh, roundabout ways because the world has changed. So, for example, in the 1980s, Reagan tried to duplicate what John F. Kennedy had done in Vietnam 20 years earlier, early 60s. Too much public opposition. He went through the same steps as Kennedy, uh, fake white paper, uh, charges of uh, Soviet intervention, and so on. Couldn't do it. There was popular uprising so significant that he had to back off and turn to massive state terror. was horrible enough, but nothing like what happened in Indochina. And today it would be hard to do even that. That's why the United States is more and more reverting to indirect forms of uh, uh, destruction and uh, subversion, not direct uh, intervention. Uh, Even the kind that overthrew the government of Chile, democratic government in 1973 on what we should call the first 9-11, 
much worse than the second 9-11. That would be hard to do today. But uh, there are other forms of uh, uh, subversion and undermining of governments, uh, sanctions, punishments. Uh, And remember that the United States has such overwhelming power that alone in the world, when it imposes sanctions, everyone has to accept them. So when Trump pulled out of the joint agreement on Iran, uh, violating Security Council orders, if anyone cares, uh, he then moved to punish Iran for the United States having withdrawn from the agreement, imposed very harsh sanctions. Europe opposed them. They didn't didn't like them. They uh, said they'd find a way around them, but they ended up obeying them. Uh, They don't want to offend the Godfather. The world actually runs very much like the Mafia. Uh, The Godfather gives the orders and Fathers disobey, they're in trouble. In the case of Europe, uh, they didn't want to suffer the possibility of literally being thrown out of the international financial system, which is pretty much run out of New York and Washington. So it's the same with Cuba. When you look at the votes in the United Nations, it's 184 to 2 opposed to the sanctions. The the two are, of course, the United States and Israel, which has to vote with the United States. Uh, So you have essentially universal opposition. Makes no difference. It barely even gets reported here. Okay, so we're alone in the world in seeking to torture Cuba, but who cares? It's our right to do it because we're the godfather. Is U.S. imperialism unique in world history? By no means. The United States is simply picking up from its predecessor in world domination, Britain. Britain had a horrendous record of centuries of terror, violence, and torture. You look over British wealth and power, ask where it came from. Go back to the Elizabethan period, came from piracy. Sir Francis Drake, the great heroes, uh, were basically pirates. They robbed Spanish ships to steal uh, gold and metals and so on. Great contribution to British wealth. Then they turned to uh, the industrial. Uh, You go back to the when the British took over India had about 25% of world GDP. When the British got through with it, it was about 3%. They deindustrialized India, stole its advanced, its much more advanced uh, technology, uh, ruined India, turned it into a, a miserable, uh, suffering country. Uh, uh, later, Britain turned to the most grotesque form of slavery in world history, Caribbean, sugar, tobacco, and so on, then moved on to uh, cooperation with the U.S., 
in uh, instituting an even more vicious system of slavery in the South to get cheap cotton, which was the fuel of the 19th century. Now, later, Britain turned to the largest narco-trafficking operation in human history uh, to try. That's part of the large part of the reason for the extended conquest of India to force farmers to grow opium instead of food so that Britain could break into the Chinese market by force and violence and uh, imposing uh, uh, drugs into the country. Well, that's Britain. I'm not giving the details. The details are horrifying. You look at France, saying the French, uh, when the French were invaded Algeria, while the French intellectuals were talking about their civilizing mission, the, the minister in charge was saying, we must exterminate the Algerians. That's uh, uh, just recently, for some reason, the New York Times has been running a, a interesting series on how France destroyed Haiti with the help of the United, United States. And it's a horrifying story. Haiti had to be punished brutally for being the first free country of free men in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, the United States, of course, was a slave society. Uh, well, can't get away with that. So brutal punishment running right up to the present couple hundred years. Okay, that's France. Uh, we can go through the rest of the record. The United States is not breaking new ground. It's taking the role of world-dominant power and acting much in the way of its predecessors. Those were European countries. Is European imperialism unique in world history, or is this just the path that the powerful take? It's more than that. There's also Russian imperialism. So you look at the history of Russia, begins with the, the Duchy of Muscovy, little area around Moscow, extends to conquer much of the uh, much of the world, huge area of the world. That's before the Soviet Union. Just talking about the Tsar. Uh, then it takes other forms during the last century. Uh, but it's hard to find. I mean, if you, know, you could say the same about the Mongols, who came out of the plains of Eurasia and conquered large part of the world. I mean, it's it's most of human history. Is it impossible to escape imperialism? Yes, of course. In fact, we have substantially done it. As I said, Ronald Reagan wanted to duplicate Kennedy, couldn't. Too much popular opposition. Uh, take Iraq. It was the first time in history that an imperialist invasion was protested massively even before it was officially launched. Well, that didn't stop it, but I think it certainly limited it. The United States didn't do anything like what it did in, say, Vietnam. 
There's just too much internal opposition. And that internal opposition can and may lead to a more civilized world in which there are greater constraints on the forces that want to oppress and dominate. It's not a law of nature. It's a matter of the way human institutions are constructed. And popular activism can change things and has. I mean, we're not on a... There are a lot of rotten things today, but it's a much more civilized society than it was, say, 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, Not by a gift from the gods, by dedicated popular activism, by people who've been mostly forgotten. Most of the people involved, nobody ever heard of. So take the, there was a strong international anti-war movement in the 60s and 70s. The one, the person who was mostly responsible for organizing it and keeping it going was Peggy Duff, British woman, amazing woman. Not only the international Indochina uh, anti-war movement, but Palestinians and other issues. Peggy was the one who basically kept it going. I, you probably never heard of her. Almost nobody ever heard of her. Okay. That's the way the world works. A friend of mine is, take Colombia, which has one of the most hideous human rights records in the hemisphere, strongly supported by the U.S. all the way. Well, there was a popular movement trying to educate people about it, to act, to try to limit the atrocities. Passed away a couple of years ago, Cecilia Zarate Lone. Nobody ever heard of her, except people who were directly involved. You look around the world, and that's what you find. You've heard of these people. How how do you know of them? Did you know yeah, them? We're close friends. Peggy was a very close friend, Cecilia, too. People who were directly involved know about them. But there's enough suppression, so it doesn't get very far out. And these are not the kinds of... I mean, let's take one of the most amazing anti-war, anti-terror popular movements in the United States. The uh, Solidarity Movement in the 1980s with Central America. It's the first time in history that people from the aggressor society, us, not only protested, but went to live with the victims to help them to provide whatever security you could provide with a white face against the Reagan-run murderous terrorists. Uh, It was from all over the country. Uh, evangelical churches in Kansas, you know, uh, uh, universities. I mean, very widespread. Nothing like it ever. Very significant. It's out of history. That's not the kind of thing that the media or the intellectual community wants people to know. You don't want people to know that it's possible not only to protest the crimes of your own state, but to go to help defend the victims. Not a good lesson. 
So you have to look far to find a record of that. Of course, the people who were involved know all about it. Are we in danger of losing the names like Peggy Duff? Well, partly, I suspect, the reason Peggy isn't known is because she was a woman. But but it's much more than that. Uh, people who really are on the front lines keeping things going, uh, they're not, you know, the people who are known are the ones who come and make speeches. Maybe doing a very good job, very good job, like take Martin Luther King, a remarkable person, should be greatly honored. But I'm sure he would have been the first person to tell you that he was riding on a wave that was created by snake workers, young uh, black students who were riding freedom buses in Alabama facing real serious terror, trying to encourage black farmers to dare to cast a vote, people like that. We don't remember their names. I happen to know some of them. But unless you were involved, you don't know their names. This is Letters and Politics, and we are in conversation with renowned linguist and political activist Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky has a new book out, which is a conversation with Vijay Prashad, a friend of this radio program. It's called The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. Noam Chomsky, is U.S. imperialism on a decline? It's it's still the dominant force in the world. Uh, there's no other country that has uh, 800 military bases and all over the world, forces fighting all over the world. As I said, no other country can impose sanctions in the manner that we can, but it's declining. The world is becoming more, as it's called, multipolar. So there's a Chinese pole of influence that's growing, developing, uh, very largely by uh, soft power, commercial trade, investment, loans, plenty of brutality. You can find that too. Uh, but it's expanding over all of Eurasia, the Belt and Road Initiative, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, spreading into the Middle East through the what's called the Maritime Silk Road, which includes the United Arab Emirates, even extends to Israel. China runs the major port in Israel, Haifa port. U.S. Navy doesn't like that, but uh, happening. Like moving into Africa, uh, even into Latin America, the U.S. backyard, where Chinese trade now exceeds uh, U.S. trade. And uh, uh, Latin American countries, African countries, uh, use Chinese technology. The United States is trying very hard to block countries from using advanced Chinese technology, but not working very well. They'd prefer to have uh, 5G from China than what the U.S. can offer them. In fact, China's 
finding interesting ways around this. They've, uh, China set up uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of schools, technical schools in much of the world, Africa, Southeast Asia, where they teach Chinese technology. Well, that's what people are going to be trained in. That's what they're going to be used. Uh, you can say that it's a form of imperialism, if you like, but soft imperialism. The U.S. can't counter that. Can't counter that with guns. Can the U.S. become a post-imperial country, and what kind of changes, if so, would have to happen for that to be? Would our lives be different? It's greatly to the benefit. We have to distinguish what's called the U.S., which means power centers. Distinguish that from the population, from the general for the general population. It would be much better to move towards an accommodation with China. Yes, there's plenty of crimes in China. Lots of things wrong. Can condemn them, but、uh, we should be moving towards. We have to move towards cooperation, or we'll all be destroyed. The major issues that we face don't have boundaries.、Uh, global warming is going to. Destroy us all unless we deal with it properly, and there's no boundaries. Threat of nuclear war has no boundaries. You can't contain a nuclear war. It's、uh, all of these things, and the same is true of advanced technology. Makes no sense. You take a look at what just happened in Congress. The United States badly needs repair of infrastructure. More research in advanced technology, a whole range of things. Well, Republicans don't want to allow any infringement on the power of private, concentrated private power, so they're always opposed. But this one, they agreed to. It was framed as a compete with China act. And if we want to rebuild bridges in the United States, only way to get through Congress, say we have to compete with China. It's a sign of a really sick society. Noam Chomsky has been our guest again. Noam Chomsky, renowned linguist, political activist, new book he has called "The Withdrawal: Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power." Noam Chomsky, thank you. Thank you very much.